welcome. And if you'd like to take a moment to introduce yourself to everyone, that would be awesome. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I think, you know, it's funny, like 18 months has gone very, very quick. Uh, and a lot has probably happened in that time since we first met. Um, but as you said, uh, my name is Reese, Reese Livingstone. I've been now in the fitness industry now nearly 10 years. And over that 10 years, I've built Lionstone Physique Coaching into what it is today and very recently um, expanded the team to seven coaches. Um, probably most notably, we've, we've most recently hit a $2 million run rate. Um, and now uh, I spend a lot of my time coaching other small businesses in the fitness industry, just trying to help them and uh, improve their ability to be less fragile, more stable and able to scale. Awesome. And so that's where I really want to start. And I'm glad that you touched on that already as to where you're currently at. And are you now just full-time sort of managing and then consulting? Or are you, are you still actually even coaching anyone anymore? No, I, don't, I haven't taken a new client uh, in over nine months personally. Um, and in that nine months, I've pretty much transitioned all the clients that I have worked with over that decade uh, or close to, um, you know, to other coaches within the company. So my time now is heavily just, it's full-time just running the business, um, thinking about strategy and scale and then uh, consulting with other small businesses as well. It's been amazing. Awesome. And so that's the whole purpose of this podcast is to speak to brilliant people like you that are in the position that I know so many people want to get to and to kind of dissect exactly how it is that you got there. And so if we like now go all the way back to the start, like starting out, what made you decide to become a trainer in the beginning? Um, what appealed to you in it? Was it something you fell into? Like how, how did that all take place? I think I'm a prime example of uh, right time, right place. Um, I think a lot of people, I, I will preface very early on in this, I think the fitness industry gets a little bit of a bad rap and there's so many people that have such limiting beliefs when it comes to their ability, the, the, how far a business can scale and what can really happen. And I was definitely one of those people. I didn't even think that fitness was a career per se. Uh, so I fell into, I fell into the career very much through, I want to say accident is probably the most uh, appropriate way to describe it. Uh, I really enjoyed training. Uh, didn't really have much direction. So I didn't actually finish school. Uh, was never an academic person. I was never someone that did well uh, under the pressure of study. Um, and it was something that caused a lot of stress. So I got to the the back end of my high schooling years and I thought this isn't for me. And at the time I had really no direction of what career I wanted to take, um, enjoyed training. And the plan was to um, just take time off and, and just work and just do stuff. Uh, and my, 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 my mom was said, why don't you just get some sort of qualification behind you so you can at least have something to fall back on? And I did that. So I got, I went up to the, uh, I did a cert three or four in, in fitness and health. And I didn't know the, the job that was coming from that course. So I rocked up on day one and I said, well, what am I getting qualified in? Cause this was back in 2012 and, and personal training at the time, especially like well, online coaching didn't really exist for one. Uh, but personal training was very much not viewed to be something as a career, it was something that a lot of people still viewed to be as a hobby. Uh, unless you were really high end exposed, it was like the opportunity was less. And you know, the only way into the industry was to pay uh, large scale amounts of rent in a, in a commercial gym. And that's what I kind of signed up for. I didn't know that I signed up for that. Uh, got qualified, enjoyed it and um, didn't really look back. So entered the industry wholeheartedly in 2013 and 
I sucked. I was so bad. I was so, so bad. And it's interesting to look back on. But yeah, I think um, I'm very much an accidental situation. Before we kind of jump into that and you sucking at personal training, um, I just want to touch quickly on something you said about school, which is that you, whether school didn't gel with you or you just found it difficult or you didn't enjoy it, like a lot of people that I've spoken to that have become extremely successful have a similar thing. Like it's school just wasn't for them. Like, so I just want to find out why, why you didn't like it. Like why didn't it work for you? I think in hindsight, I don't think I'd have recognized this then, but I think in hindsight, there was probably an element of uh, struggling with authority. Um, I always kind of paved my own way. I thought I, I was very, I was always very much a creative. So I always wanted to try and find a way to do things in a way that suited me best, that actually felt good and that I could adapt to and adjust to. And I don't think a traditional schooling process really allows for that. Um, I think in the world of entrepreneurship, creatives, I think school, the traditional, in the traditional sense at least, uh, will curb a lot of that creativity. Is it, you know, by definition, you have to do things in a certain way in a certain sequence, and I struggled with that heavily. I, uh, I probably, I probably kind of lent into that as a bit of an identity as well. I uh, didn't see myself to be someone that was educated or could be educated. Uh, little did I know, I just lacked the ability to apply passion. Once I found that passion, I could, I could take on information really well. That's such a huge thing. Like I've learned since. Because uh, same thing for me, like I found school extremely tedious, boring. I hated authority, people telling me you have to do things in a certain way. When even at that age, I thought, well, I think there's a better way to do stuff. Like maybe yeah. we could look at doing it this way instead. Um, but then later in life, very similar to yourself, there's now things that I, even going to like particle physics and um, like biochemistry and stuff like that, that I've increasingly got knowledge on because I'm excited by it. And so I can, because I'm excited by it, I'm passionate about it, I seek out that information. Whereas in school, when they're telling you this is what you have to learn, it's, for me, it was a huge disconnect. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more because for me, like I left, I left school and once I did kind of fall into fitness, I found that I enjoyed it. I, I would read and consume everything and I became more of a bookworm than I ever thought I would ever like, be able to even comprehend. So it's definitely, I think passion is the key to open that door. Yeah. And so you, so you leave school, you get what you and your mom agree is going to be a good idea to get a certification. You get to the gym floor, you suck. And what, so what happens next? Well, I, it took, so to kind of paint the picture a little bit, I, the gym that I'd signed up to, uh, pretty much week one or week two, you were going straight into paying full rent at the time. So that was $350, uh, AUD and earning absolutely nothing. Uh, it took me eight months to to sign my first client. Um, so uh, you can do the quick math, but it was quite a lot of money spent in eight months with no revenue coming in. Uh, so I had two other jobs at the time. I was working like night shift factory work and, and in a surf store, in a surf store, clothing store um, to kind of just facilitate this, this process of, I thought I could do something with it. I didn't really know what, but uh, yeah, I, I was horrible. I was a traditional trainer that would be, you know, have no structure, no, um, education behind what I was, I, I guess, preaching at the time and would just have clients come in, do multiple free sessions, uh, lack the authority and the confidence to then ask for money for that. Uh, and really kind of had no ability to sell a service because I had no confidence in my own ability, my own service and my own acumen in that, at that time. I was very lucky. Um, I think business is a, 
business is a, I guess, a good equation or it's a, it's a mixture of both effort, time, leverage, and luck. I think luck is a big part of that, getting in the right rooms at the right time. Uh, I was very lucky in the sense that the, the gym that I joined or the gym that I started to work at, there were two people there that had been by that time, maybe five or six years into the industry. And they saw a little bit of potential in me. They, uh, they, they, they gave me the, the footholds in the industry to, um, to feel like I could succeed. So I had signed up to work with one of them and they at the time were, ho- were hosting like these things called muscle camps. And it was just a, a literally just a learn how to train process. Uh, and I, I loved it. And, um, I got given an opportunity to essentially join businesses with them at the end of that, um, where I, I was, uh, coaching under their brand name. Um, but as a part owner, so they brought me in as a part owner and, um, we, from there, it was probably a three or four year process where that business grew and grew and grew to a point where I was doing maybe 70 to 75 in-person sessions per week. Um, and the only reason I stopped doing that was purely due to a relationship breakdown. I thought like I could, well, it was my fault. It was completely my fault. I worked too much, had no ability to prioritize the relationship. And then that, uh, that made me look at the, the whole, uh, landscape of the business at the time. And I realized it's not what I want to do. I didn't want to trade time for money anymore and, uh, didn't, didn't enjoy it. Why, why did you keep going? So prior to getting to that point of 70, 75 clients on the gym floor, when you're eight months in, you're paying 300 Australian dollars for rent each month. That's just building up and you're getting rejection after rejection after rejection. People, you're trying to push through and you're just building up the courage to ask someone to pay you some money and everyone's saying no. Like, What kept you going six months in? I'm a very uh, stubborn person. I'm very, very stubborn. And um, at the time, I think it's it's probably understated that Personal training was, I think every person that's kind of gone through the industry over that period of time, you would hear them in that back then say, I'm just a personal trainer. And they would always use that word just. Um, and that was very heavily ingrained into me via my parents, via my friends around me. Uh, and I guess by society at large. And I'd made a decision that I was going to do it. And I, I'd, I remember a, a conversation very vividly with my dad. And he said like, how are you going to do this for 30 years if it's unsustainable um, you know, unpredictable and very, very fragile. And I, I looked at him and I said, well, who says I have to do the same thing for 30 years? It's a different age now, dad, like not things don't work the same. And if I don't like it, I can leave. There's no pressure. But I remember very vividly that, that conversation, I I made a mental note and I said, well, I'm going to do the same thing for 30 years and I'm going to show him. So it was a, a fear of what the alternative was, was the fear of admitting that I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I, I had some sort of drive that, uh, or some sort of belief, even when things were bad, that it could get better. And the only the only aspect, the difference between bad and good is time. And and I learned that pretty quick. And did you ever, at any point in doing that, are you someone that you go all in on plan A, or are you someone that thinks, well, maybe I should start thinking about plan B, plan C, or is that just off your radar? Your plan A is going to happen. If plan A doesn't happen, then I'll figure it out afterwards. I am... Um... I, now I'm very much a plan A only. I, uh, I don't have a plan B. I don't, I don't back into anything else. But at the time when I was going through that growth phase or attempted growth um, and trying to sign someone in that first eight months, I, ha- I had two other jobs. So I had this safety net that I felt like I could rely on. But as soon as I got my first client, I quit both. I was like, okay, now I'm, now I'm good. I've got one client. Let's go. I can, I, if I can get one, I can get 10. If I can get 10, I can get 15 and, and it can grow. 
Um, I'm very much now a, uh, some would say it's probably a little bit of a bad trait. I'm very much in a, I guess, an idealist and I align a lot of my identity to the success of one plan. Uh, and that's definitely how I view life now. It's like, I will, I will die on the sword before I give up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I find that interesting because I think I'm, I'm very similar. Like I don't, and I remember I heard a saying say that said, um, like you shouldn't have a plan B because it distracts from plan A. And so if you're just like all in on plan A, then even if you fail, you're going to fail knowing that you gave everything to plan A rather than, well, I was sort of thinking about this other thing over here. What's well, human nature. If you have something that's, that, that is by definition more safe, you won't play large where it matters and you will, you will keep those cards closer to your chest because you can. Um, whereas like I look at, you know, I, th- I think comp- the competitive bodybuilding is a really good um, comparative or a, a very big, a very good connect here because people that want to win, people that compete, they give them so- no, no other choice other than com- competing to win. You don't see someone go through a prep to uh, come fourth or third. They're all going for the same position. And if you put it all on the line like that, I think um, you, know, you do remove a lot of distraction by default. Yeah, agreed. And so like looping back to now you're in the position of 70 to 80 clients, you've had this spurt of growth, you're learning from these guys that have been in the industry for a few years. Um, what then led you to go from there to the, the next step? It was definitely the, uh, the breakdown of that relationship. It was very much a a realization that if I continue to trade time for money in the fashion that I was, I would not have all of what I was telling myself I was working for. I think a lot of people get into this thought process of like hustle, grind, work more and so on. uh, And they forget about what they're actually working for. And I was very, very guilty of this. I would, I would tell my partner at the time, like, Oh, I'm working for our future, our future. And she made the point um, in the, in the conversation of where we, when we ended things, she made the point of saying, you say we're working for the future, but what about how do we get to that future if we can't even spend any time together now? And that, that broke me. It was very, very confronting. It took a lot of time to deal with. Um, but I think that was the big catalyst as to a bunch of things in, in, the, in the world of successful business. Um, it's one, what taught me not to trade time for money. Two, it, was, it taught me that, I, uh, that, work, that work ethic isn't a defining factor to growth, to leverage, learning to work less but get more. Uh, and then three, probably the biggest one is that I would often back myself into a corner later in life thinking that, uh, it was like a, I guess a, a badge of honor that if I could back myself into a corner, uh, succeed still and, and knock the doors down, knock the walls down and make sure that like, you know, even in the worst times I can make it happen. That was my version of proving to myself that, you know, that relationship was savable. I just didn't try hard enough. And um, I've done a lot of work with, the, with like psychologists to, to try and get to that, that point where I've realized, well, maybe sometimes backing yourself into the wall isn't the best decision, especially when it can be fixed earlier. And with your like trait of being stubborn and obviously having that determination in business to reach the success that you've had, how, how do you stop yourself from going back to that? Is it now clear cut? You don't do that anymore ever? Would you ever find yourself in periods where you have like a sprint of work and you just start going down that rabbit hole again and then you kind of get to a point of like, shit, I need to, I need to stop because I know what's coming. I think, um, I think that comes from a place of one in enjoyment. I actually really enjoy the, the way I work now. 
Um, and I think I very much do sprints. Um, I'll sprint in periods or, or projects. Uh, and then I will give myself adequate time afterwards. But I'm very much in the position now that if I, um, if I do take time away, I feel like there's my, my list of things is always just growing. And when I'm not ticking things off that list, even if they're mundane things, uh, I get more stressed. So I've had to find a way to, to try and create this push and pull relationship with work and life. And I don't think you ever get balance on the pursuit of growth. I think uh, synergy is probably a better word. I think balance is assuming that one is the, is the, is the enemy. Um, and I've tried to position a little bit different in my brain that uh, work-life synergy rather than balance. I need both to just coincide. Yeah, yeah. That's a really cool way to look at it because I, so honestly, I struggle with that. Like everything you talked about um, in the breakdown of that relationship is apparent for me. Like I am obsessed with work and with, I back myself into corners because I almost feel like sometimes I'm the bodybuilder that feels like he has to do two hours on the, on the Stairmaster completely fasted. He has to get down to a thousand calories because if he's suffering, then he knows he's making progress. And yeah. we all know from like an outside perspective that that's bonkers, that actually you can organize things in a way to still get the success you want, but enjoy the process. And I often find myself in periods of just so much relentless work and relentless stubbornness that I can back myself into a corner. So this is exactly why like, I, I wanted you on the podcast because it's so interesting to hear how you've gone through that and now you have like systems that you've put in place in order to do it. And you mentioned there about having lists and taking things off. Is that, uh, do you sort of live by lists or do you use them as a tool every day? I use something called game theory. Um, I learned this off a mentor of mine early, early in business. His name was TJ. Uh, Travis Jones and game theory for me has really changed my life. And the, the way I, the best way to explain it is to treat your life like a bit of a game. Now let's say that the game is four weeks long um, and there's 200 points on offer throughout that game, right? That's the maximum amount that you can acquire. So you just assign points to everything in your day-to-day -day life, whether it be in business or personal, the more important things get given more points. And if you were to tick off everything, you would still, you'd get, you'd get the full 200 points. But what constitutes a win, and this is subjective, but I've constituted a win for that game 150 points or above. So it means that I will prioritize the things that come with more points. And at any given time, that priority might change. So for example, if the relationship needs more work, I'll prioritize time with my partner as a higher point system. Um, whereas if we're in a sprint phase and you know hiring new staff, I will prioritize a few things within the, the training of those staff to have high, higher point regimes. So doing it in that way and knowing that like I can still win the game, even if I leave a few things undone, it makes me prioritize the things that, that are worth more points, but I can still get to the back end of that, that game and not have this defeatist attitude that I feel like a failure and I haven't done what I needed to. Yeah, for sure. How long have you done that for? I've went to, uh, this is years. So the first seminar I went to was with uh, a TJ Jones one. And uh, that would have been maybe 2015. So six years. Okay. And you do you find that having, and this is a question I was going to get up to um, for a number of reasons, but did you find having a mentor helpful? And at what point do you think that at what level or even point in someone's life, do you think that they would benefit from having a mentor to help guide them through the next steps? I think, I think that's a yes and no. I think it's a very, it depends not to put, to play too neutral, but 
I think there's a lot of things that you need to learn through experience. I think there's failures, like at the point of a mentor, like if we, if we, uh, I guess, define what the, the necessity for a mentor is first, it's to play a game of leapfrog. It's to tap on their shoulders and jump over their problems and they teach you how not to face them. Um, and that's realistically what podcasts just like this will hopefully do for people where they can avoid some of the challenges that other people have faced. But I think some of the biggest lessons that I've learned in business have come from the points of almost quitting, failing, um, all the hardship and all the things that have broke me tenfold times over. Uh, they're the things that have learned and taught me the most. And I don't think that those changes in the way you view business and view life can come from just being told what you would experience if you hit that failure and having avoided all of them through a mentor. I think a mentor's job is to mitigate the problems, not completely allow you to avoid them. Um, mitigate the the ones that will shatter you, the ones that will break the business completely and destroy cash flow. Yeah, we want to avoid those. But some of the lessons along the way are necessary, I believe. So I think everyone can can definitely benefit from a mentor, but I think it's stage situational. You want to get a mentor that is just ahead of you, ideally, or just where you want to go, Right. It wouldn't, where at work, I'll use myself as an example, like where we are within business, it wouldn't make much sense for me to go get a mentor, use the capital that would be required to pay a mentor that's making $500 million a year. The problems that a $500 million mentor is, is facing currently are very different to the business troubles that I'm having going from two to, two to 10 mil. So having someone that's just hit that 10, talk to me about the problems that I'm going to face over the next two to three years, extremely helpful for me. Because I can, I, and I think probably, I'd, I'd assume there's going to be a lot of coaches that listen to this, but the best exp explanation or the best uh, example I can give for that is when you've been a PT or a coach for 10 years, it's very hard for you to relate to the person that's never been, been in the gym. Very hard for you to coach that very, very new person because you can't relate to their issues as easily. You're a little bit less, uh, you're a little bit more detached. So I think mentorship's a great stage situational. Get someone that's going or has been right where you want to go in the next three to five years or it's currently there. Yeah, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. And I think that failure is a necessity to help help you just grow as an individual and to build character. And unless you failed, unless you really truthfully failed and then come back from that, you don't really ever understand the consequence of what that means. And so if yeah. you've got someone that's always going to help you and they're giving you the strategy or a playbook to do things by, if you don't understand that, at the end of that, if you fail, there's this catastrophic line of like failure, being in debt, like having your business fail, like losing friends, losing sleep, like all these other things that are associated with failing. That now, if you're like pushing really, really hard to grow a business again, you're at the back of your brain, your brain's trying to protect you. And it's saying, look, this, this is a real possibility. Like all these things can happen. And so you take real value in the success that you're creating for yourself, if that makes sense. Absolutely agree. I think like, and I, I think to, to your point, failure is not just a necessity, but it builds a lot of character. I think one thing to take from that is that people will assume that they'll see this, this, their vision of success. Maybe it's someone they idolize, they look up to, and they'll assume that the failure hasn't been at the same level that theirs, ours, that theirs is currently. Um, and they just feel like, you know, success is for special people. And it's not like the failure that like, that I've faced and we I've faced, I've faced nearly going out of business two times already to the point where I was almost bankrupt to the point where I, we were like, what the hell do we do? And that's where I learned how to pivot the most. That's where I learned leverage. That's like when, when things were at their hardest, that's where I learned. And I don't think, uh, 
I don't look, I, I wish that businesses would never have to go to rock bottom and feel that. I really wish we wish that was the case, but we could sit here for hours talk about, talking about like what the world could be and what it should be. But unfortunately we have to deal with what it is and failure is a part of that. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I've been there, like, like you're saying, like I twice as well, like almost bankrupt, but not just like, Hey, I was almost bankrupt. Like as a story, it was literally sitting across the table from an insolvency practitioner trying to figure out what my next, like what my next move is. And yeah. so what, when, if you don't mind talking about it, when was the last time this happened for you? Like almost getting to the brink of nothingness. And then, so what was the catalyst for that? And then how did you turn things around? What, how did you come out of that? And what did you do? I, so I, I think I was, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word lucky. Um, and very strategically, I was lucky to come into a lot of money early within my business and come into a lot of success. Now, how I got that success was arguably not lucky, but I was lucky the fact that it came when it did. Um, I was young and I think like, like most young people relationship with money is horrible. And I spent it like I, like I had way more than I did. And, um, I, at that point hadn't learned the lessons of what tax is and how to pay it. And I spent a hell of a lot of money that wasn't mine. Um, and got to the, got to the end of the tax, like tax year and just put it off and oh, that'll, that I can do that later. I can do that later. Uh, and in the space of a 12 months, 12 month period of a, of a financial year, I, I had escalated three tax brackets, maybe four. Um, and it was, so it was, it was a pretty substantial growth period. And then I then put off seeing my accountant for a very long time. And, uh, I ended up finally going in to see him and I had a GST backdated bill of over $80,000. I had a tax bill of over another 50. Oh, I think, sorry, it was reverse tax bill of over $80,000 and a GST, GST bill of over 50. So we're looking at cumulatively $130,000 that I didn't have because uh, I'd spent it. So that was extremely scary. And that was, that was 2017, I believe, or 16. Uh, after that, shortly after that, I thought, well, okay, I've just got to work three times as much. I'll make it work. Uh, signed up more clients, worked myself more. Um, and then got to the point of this would have been late 2018, uh, I was just working so much and I thought this was probably a, another failure point, but not through, uh, it was not through the same financial issue. It was more so I just lost the passion for working as much as I was. And I had heavily considered uh, going to work in the loading docks and just having a normal job and earning a couple thousand dollars a week and just settling with that. And uh, it was at the point where like I was full, but I was very, very willing to throw it all away because I just was not happy. Um, and yeah, and then that obviously that led to me giving a lesser service and I wasn't ready to pull the trigger on taking that other job. So clients were leaving. I wasn't doing the work to get more clients because I hated it. And that just kept rolling and rolling and rolling for about six months until I almost had no clients. Um, so it was, you know, pretty much build from the ground up again. And that's when, you know, I took a whole shift in the way I approached coaching that coaching needs to be something that people can actually talk to their friends about and give the service that uh, I would want my family to have. Uh, so I doubled down on service. I read, I think it was, oh, I read, I read, I think it might've been 2019, early 2019, maybe I read a book by Grant Cardone and I learned that you just need to do more of everything um, and just double down 10 X everything. So I went into that process and uh, I'd been watching a lot of his content, a lot of Gary, Gary V's content. I just thought, well, I'm just going to do more. I'm just going to uh, find a way to make the service and product better. Uh, and once I did that, I, I 
as as probably um, elitist this might sound, it became easy. It became easy when the product was better and the product could sell itself. It became very, very easy. And that's where I was able to hire my first staff. And then from there, it just it compounded. Yeah, I think that's the thing. If you've got, like, you could be awesome at sales and marketing, right? And you can get people's in, people into your funnel. But if your service is shit, what you're offering people, it's it's not going to be easy to maintain retention. Your churn rate's going to go through the roof. Like, it's just going to fall off the back end. So making sure, first and foremost, that the that you believe in the service you're offering, that you're passionate about it, that you really truthfully believe that you can do like solve the problem for the person that's coming on to take out your service. And then, cause I always say, get that right first, like figure that out, make sure that that is as good as it can be. And then retention as well, like work on retention. And then I would say work on your front end stuff. Would you do that yeah. in a similar way or how would you structure it? I, I fully agree. I, something that I actually do, we do it on a quarterly basis with our full staff team. Our full staffing team is, We'll get in a room and go write everything down about our product that could be better. And I don't. And I tell them I don't care how much it will cost. I don't care how much it will, uh, how much time it will take. Like, what could we change that makes it better? Because the the and I I do it a bit extremist, but I say to them like I want to be able to charge ten times what we charge now, and when we're by far not cheap. We're probably the most expensive coaching company in our state. Um, but I want to be able to charge ten times as much as we t- do currently in in the next two years. So what do we do? What do we need to change? And we'll write down everything and you know, every time we do this, the list gets more uh, ridiculous. But we will circle three things on that list every quarter and say, this is what's happened. We're going to do this. What costs the least amount of money and least amount of time? We're going to implement those, those three things or do our best to. So I think implementing a change in service or growth of service specifically for your clients, for the people paying. Now, this is where a lot of uh, people in our industry especially will uh, have a little bit of an ego and go, well, no, my product's good. I'm a good coach. It's like, well... When was the last time you audited your your customers? What do they need? How well do you know their their like needs, wants, and their pain points? How can you improve upon that? And to your point that a lot of people will focus on sales and marketing, I think it becomes a lot easier with a good product, but more, more specifically that anyone can charge any amount of money. Like you could, you could say tomorrow that I'm starting a new coaching company and you could put an unbelievable price tag on it now that's fine and you could if you're a really good salesperson you could also sell it but what's your repurchase rate what's your ltv how often are people churning like is it good enough that people will pay it on repeat and this is where a lot of people will struggle and they'll go well i don't i, I want to put my price up I'm like well, okay cool you can, you can put your price up tomorrow like you, there's nothing stopping you from doing that but what you're worried about is if you're valuable enough and it's never a price problem it's a value problem so focus on value first and then escalate price accordingly. I couldn't agree more. I've met coaches that have focused so much on the front end that they'll do really well getting front end sales, but each month they'll lose the exact same amount of people that yeah. are coming in on the front end. So they, they're doing all this extra work and they're spending, because every time you onboard someone new, that's a lot more effort and work than working with someone that's been with you for three months and continuing yeah. their plan thereafter. Um, and so they create more work for themselves but because they've got more people coming in, they feel good about it, but actually they're net the same every single month. Yeah. I think when it, like I break this down into a, a, a four pillar process, right? Most people will focus on acquisition. How do they get their clients? Then they will also probably focus on how they sell their clients. What's their sales process. They might focus on how they service their clients, but they very, very rarely focus on how they ascend their clients. So it's very it's actually far easier to get your clients that pay you already to pay you more 
So what's the service above your normal service? How can you give extra? What can you do differently to get them to pay you more, increase LTV and reduce churn rate because they buy into your product further? Yeah, for sure. And you, so when you were getting to the point of you looking to hire a coach, so you're getting to the point of now, so this is after there's the second process of you going through trouble again, almost bankrupt, and you've got your passion for it. You've been reading Grant Cardone's, uh, Cardone's book, Gary V. You're now starting to grow your business again, focusing on service, getting that right this time around. At what point did you think, because this is a question that I see a lot on social, at what point did you think I need someone to come in and help me? Mine was a matter of, uh, to be fully transparent, mine was a matter of greed. Mine was a matter of, I'm, I'm seeing that there's inquiry rates coming through that I can't keep up with the speed of that I normally would. And I viewed that as dollars on the table. So I thought, well, it's only logical to bring someone in that can accrue more money that will allow me to build the lifestyle I want. I, like, I think a lot of people are scared to admit that they, they do business to make money. Like, yes, we want to help people. Yes, we want to solve a problem. But ultimately, money does make the world go around. And I was very aware of that, that I was like, okay, well, for us to grow, and I, I don't like staying the same. I didn't, I think for me, stagnant, uh, without change, I, I feel bored and I feel like it's an, I'm going to go backwards. And that's probably made f- even more evident by you know, the previous relationship breakdown. I could have just kept doing the same amount of work, but I would have then been in the same situation. So what I viewed at the time, and I, I think probably for me, the, to sum it up, is time was always the enemy. So I'd grown the online business to a place where I could no longer uh, keep up with it. And then I thought, well, I'm putting more and more and more time in here. So my leverage is actually getting less. So I need someone else to delegate so I can increase that leverage again and reduce my time. And that's, that's been a consistent factor of it's, it's a conversation of leverage, right? And I think, I, I don't know, I don't know whose quote this is, but if you want to go far, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I always viewed it as that. Um, I think my grandpa first told me that. Uh, but he's he stolen it from someone else. But um, I think that was always something that I, I figured out that like to go further and to go f- like, just keep bringing this far, like further and further away and, and making this thing grow. I couldn't do it alone. I could go fast alone and I could do a lot very quickly, but I couldn't get it to a place where I could actually step back and have some time. And you think the biggest catalyst for you to be able to create that growth was that pivoting moment where you started to focus on service and value to your clients? I think that's one of the biggest things. Like I'm, um, I'm the first to admit the way we run coaching as a company is not, it's not that by normal standards of the industry, it's not the easiest thing to sell. So we sell education. Our core product is education. And that's what we really believe in. And that is the, the future of the industry. Most people don't want education, right? Most people want the quick fix. Most people want the, the challenge. Most people want the, um, the shiny object that just seems very, very attainable. Whereas if we were to get on a call with someone and say, hey, we're not about the next six weeks, we're about the next six years, I'm going to educate you on how to get a result, keep a result, so you never have to pay someone else ever again, it becomes far less easily, easily sold. So the way to do that is to give them what they want on the front end. We're going to give you some fast wins, we're going to give you some quick stuff, but then we're going to teach you and we're going to take our time to do so. And that comes through service. Mm. And what are some of those quick wins? So when someone comes to you, and they're looking to be educated, to learn actually the right way to do it. What, like nine times out of 10, when you look at accounts, is there things that just stand out immediately from people's businesses? Is there a common thing that you notice um, among people? Or what would you say is like the top three things someone could do? 
I think if we use Lionstone as an example, uh, the way we get some quick wins early is to be openly aggressive. Um, so we will tell, we will be very uh, transparent, like, well, cool. This, this approach will get you some fast fat loss, for example, but it is not going to get you sustainable outcomes. But we will be willingly and, and transparently open about the fact that this is going to be a bit more aggressive. Let's go. We'll get some small wins on the board. Uh, and then we will take you into a process to, to bring this on. But I think as for businesses, what they could do is uh, a small win can be physical. It could be a change. Uh, it could be something like weight shift, but it could also just be a reinforcement of the decision to sign up. So we have some pretty extensive automation in the back end of our business that when someone does sign up with us within 30 seconds of that payment being processed, they get their welcome pack. They get a whole bunch of discounts to uh, partnering companies. They get a bunch of stuff to suggest that they've made a good decision and that's a small win for them. So reinforcing the decision post-purchase and nurturing them into their first week is really critical. Uh, a few ways that we do that is at the end of each week, my, myself, because I don't coach anymore, there is a, a small degree of status attached to contact with me. So at the end of each week, end of the first week that they've like been with us, they will get one, a call from me, just welcome them like, how's your first week going? What's going on? And two, they will also, I'll just ask for their address because I'll say, I'm going to send you out a little thank you. And I do a handwritten card, send them out a thank you. And it makes a world of difference. Like when we've, since implementing that, our churn rate has reduced by over, over 50% just from that one change. That's such a nice touch, especially in the world of like social media, like to actually get a handwritten note from someone would be, I imagine people are quite surprised, like, although yeah. you've got their address, but to get like a handwritten note from you is there's real value in that. Yeah. One of the other things that we do uh, is speed. So uh, I heard this a long time ago in a sales book that time kills all deals. So speed is king. Uh, so our inquiry process, if someone inquires, essentially fills out our form online and does the thing, uh, it's generally a three-minute response rate. It's a call from me, and it's widely accepted that I don't coach anymore. And as long as it's in waking hours between 9 a.m. and 7 p.m., I will call them and go, hey, we've just received your inquiry. Just want to let you know that we're on top of it. But I want to find out a little bit more about your goals so I can make sure you get assigned to the right coach. And again, since doing that, like our profit margins that month when I implemented that were just insane. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely unreal. That's like, even on Kahuna's, that's probably the biggest thing is that people, I think people want to know that, that one, that they can trust you, but that you value them as a customer, that if they're going to contact you, they're not going to wait a week or 10 days to get a reply. They and to be human as well, right? To call people up and be like, hey, like, just want to make sure we've got everything we need, like, and you're okay, rather than like a robotic response or automation or something like that. Yeah. It's so powerful. I think automation has its place, like, to create efficiency. But um, a, a little bit of user input goes a very long way. And I think for, for people at home that perhaps maybe they're not at the point where they've scaled as much as they, they'd hoped and they've got uh, a lot of time on their hands. Like, I think... Uh, I've gotten a little bit of, um, I guess, back from other people in the industry when I've said stuff like this, but I believe, in my opinion, that inefficiency is a, is a luxury. And in the early stages of business where you have the, have the time, you have the time that I don't have, that you don't have, that say coaches that are running seven-figure businesses don't have, you can be extremely inefficient and you can do a lot of user input. You can message people directly, you can call them and you can do the things that your competition probably don't have time for. And the reason I say it's a luxury is because it will dissipate. It will go. The busier you get, the, busy, the bigger the company grows, the less likely you are to be able to do that stuff. Now, I'm in a unique position where I have staff that you know, take care of the onboarding process. There's a bit of automation on the back end. 
and I am pretty much in my office most of the hours of the day, whereas in, inquiries come through, I can make that two minute phone call and have no worries. Yeah. I think it's so important like to like, that's such a good point that you've made because people sometimes are too quick to want to do all those things. But if you have the time and being inefficient in it, it's so important, I think. And this is why I, in the beginning, was doing all the customer support on Kahunas. So any message yeah. we had come in, whether it was on Instagram, email, whatever, I would manually go in there and have conversations with people. And I did, I could have done bots, could have done automations, could have hired someone to do it. But the reason that I did that is because it allowed me to understand on a granular level every single pain point that people had that were coming in. Like, what is it that they were struggling with? What frustrations did they have with other platforms? What did they desperately need out of, what was their curiosity in Kahuna's? And that allowed me in the very early days to start to, start to shape what this was going to look like for our customers and then to actually build the product around them. So you can use that time to really increase that value that you're talking about and that service to make sure that when you get to the point of automation, you get to the point of having all these other systems, that you've nailed it. You've got like a blueprint for how your customers feel and what you need to deliver to them. Yeah, I think like, like I've said the word leverage a couple of times throughout this podcast already. And I think like it just comes down into three things. You've either got time, tech or capital, right? In the early days as, or in the early days of business, time is your best friend. Use it. Like spend the time, save the capital and worry about tech later. Like if you can implement that and you can implement, because that's the thing as well, it's only on you. Like you can implement that really fast. Come back to what I said before, time kills all deals. You can implement your own time very quickly. I think that's like one of the big take-home points. Like don't be afraid to be inefficient. I agree. And so Reese, this has been super enjoyable. I've got one more question for you, which is kind of a, a big one to finish on. But it's if tomorrow you lost everything, so your, Insta your social following disappeared overnight. Your businesses disappeared over overnight. Tomorrow you're starting from day one. You've got nothing and you want to build yourself up as a coach again. What would be the first things that you do? It's funny you ask this because I'm actually doing a bit of a social experiment, essentially playing this out. Um, so um, I had a little bit of a discussion, backstory, had a bit of a discussion with a trainer who'd been in the industry, similar time period as me. Uh, and he was a bit upset about the fact that there's so many people coming into our industry now, going straight into online coaching, not doing the one-on-one -on -one stuff um, and making good money. And I said to him, I go, well, mate, you probably do the same thing. We came into the industry at a time where the accepted normal was to go spend $300 a week in rent to gain the experience. I said, I guarantee you now, if you could spend $300 just to do a different course, learn from someone new and do the things and do it online where you could just work anywhere, why would you not? If you could build a following, you could sell the product, you could probably build a six-figure business pretty damn quick. And I argued that you could do it in less than four weeks. So that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. I'm doing a little bit of a separate venture, completely separate to Lionstone. None of the branding, none of the IP, none of the capital. And I fully intend to create a six-figure business within four weeks. And the way I'm doing that is wrap what people need with what they want, right? So know that in the fitness industry, people want fast, people want quick, people want the shiny object. Have an ascension plan after you give them that. So with no brand, you have the luxury of not having this brand equity where you've like really dr dr like driven into this, like, well, we don't do things this way. We do things this way. If you were starting again, all of that goes with it. So a really easy way to start again would be go down the road of give people the fast wins, give them the really quick uh, version of education, make it super easy, low barriers of resistance, uh, easy adoption rate and very low price point, and then have a reoccurring 
system after that to ascend them into a higher level of coaching that gives them the longer term strategy. Um, so to kind of, to summarize that, I would wrap what people need with what they want. And I would then focus on service. Because it's going to be very easy to draw people in with what they want. You, you adhere to their psychological proclivities. And this is one thing, if people listen to anything I've said, remember that there is a buying cycle. There is a buying psychology, not just a sales psychology. We always think about how to sell, but what do people buy and why do you buy things? If you think about why you buy things, you'll start to understand like there are certain similarities as to when you spend money and why you spend it. It's largely due to there's an emotional pain or there's a problem that needs solved. Can we, is this experiment that you're doing public somewhere? Can we follow it and watch it? It will be. We're going to, we've been filming and documenting the whole process so far. We're about four days in already. Um, and then we'll, once it's all done, we will release it as a bit of a doco. Fantastic. So we will, as soon as you've done that and you release it, we'll get that out to everyone that's uh, watching and so that Thank they you. can just come along and, and, and have a look. So yeah. just finally, where, where can people find out more about you, get in contact with you if they want to use your services? Uh, best pace. I, I have my own podcast from lambs to lions. It's on Spotify, YouTube, and uh, all the things in between. That is a place where we have conversations just like this, talking about business strategy, um, really trying to figure out what actually helps businesses succeed rather than just tell the stories of, uh, of success. I think in the entrepreneurial world, especially in the fitness space, a lot of the time people uh, gatekeep their secrets and gatekeep the ways that they got to where they did and they only tell you about, well, I was once not successful and now I am, so you can be too. Uh, so we really try and go to, through exactly what Mark and I have done today and uh, give practical application. So that's the best place from Lambs to Lions or over on Instagram at Reese Livingstone. Awesome. Thank you so much. And we'll pop all those links in the description uh, so that you guys can click through. Uh, can't thank you enough. Like, really appreciate it. First podcast and super excited. Thank you so much, Reese. No worries, Mark. Thank you for having me.